All right, we're here talking about NFTs, EFTs, and what's going on with the world of Bitcoin. Uh, and of course, who's going to make it to space first? Are you going to go with Elon, Jeff, or of course, Sir Richard? Just kidding, you're on the wrong show. Uh, we're here with Disrupt TV, and we're going to do some in the back room. Uh, we're going to talk about who's here, what's going on, and do a little quick introductions before we kick off and go live. So we'll start with Jeff. Where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? So I'm calling in uh, from a very rare occasion. I'm actually in our office in Boston um, from the Deloitte offices. Uh, as you'll get to know, both Steve and I are with Deloitte, and we're here to talk primarily about our new book called Provoke, How Leaders Shape the Future by Overcoming Fatal Human Flaws. How's that? Fatal God. So fatal human flaws. All right. Steve, where are you calling in from? I am calling in from my uh, bedroom in my New York apartment. Uh, and as you can as you can tell, at least we got up and made our bed today. Uh, but this is the uh, the life we've been living for the last little while. Uh, I too am with Deloitte. I'm our chief strategy officer, and uh, I've had some fun authoring some books with Jeff over the last few years. So, uh, look forward to the discussion. Right, you guys have quite a series. Cool. And John, where are you calling in from? What are we going to talk about today? I'm in my back cave in Northampton, Mass, getting ready to head west for a little show called Constellation Connected Enterprise. Uh, today, uh, I'm going to be dismantling customer success. So let's see who's still standing after that. All right. Very, very cool. We'll see you in the hour. We're going to kick off the show. L, please do the honors. And of course, we're here with my awesome co-host, Diane Hinchcliffe. And uh, we'll just do the introductions in a bit. So, all right, L, let's go. All right. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Disrupt TV. Um, I'm here with my awesome co-host, Diane Hinchcliffe. Bala Ashar won't be here today. Uh, Diane, as you know, is one of the top, well, I'd say futurist CXO, um, you know, advisors, um, practitioners himself, uh, the man who actually coined the term Enterprise 2.0 early in the days. And he's got a lot of very interesting things in his bio. Um, but more importantly, thank you for being here. Um, I'm Ray Wong, and we've got a very, very interesting, exciting episode today. Uh, we're going to kick off with two individuals, Steve Goldbach and Jeff Tuff. Um, and I'll do quickly their bios, and then we will kick off to their questions. Um, so as many of you guys know, uh, Steve Goldbach is the chief strategy officer at Deloitte. Um, and he's also a principal. And not only doing that, he was also part of Monitor Group, if everybody remembers that, and co-head of its New York office. He's been spending time. They've got a brand new book called Provoke. Um, he's the creator and dean of Deloitte's Global Master Strategist Program. That's uh, a very, very exciting program if you've ever done that. And uh, during the pandemic, he moved that global program to complete virtual delivery. He's trained over 50 Deloitte leaders on core strategy concepts, including playing to win. Uh, and of course, um, productive interactions, scenario planning, and activating strategy sales in the marketplace. Um, and of course, he's a lot of interesting jobs in the past. Um, and of course, he's the co-author of the 2018 national bestseller, which I read, Detonate, Why and How Corporations Must Blow Up Best Practices and Bring a Beginner's Mindset to Survive. And of course, in 2019, he was a Thinker's 50. His name is a finalist for Distinguished Achievement Award in Strategy, and he's also been shortlisted for Leadership Award. Um, so thank you for being here. You can follow him at Stephen underscore Goldbach. And we're also with Jeff Tuff. Jeff, welcome. He's the senior leader of the innovation practice at Deloitte. He's had almost 30 years of experience consulting to some of the world's top companies on anything from strategy, growth, innovation, adapting
using business models to deal with change. He's also a principal at Deloitte and the leader of the Future of Energy Initiative. It's only get more and more important. And as everyone knows, as we're heading into a clean economy, and of course, he's had different various leadership roles across the firm in sustainability, innovation, and strategy practices. He's definitely not, not hot. <laughs> no, actually, one of the hottest practices right now. And of course, prior to this, he led innovation at the firm Doblin and was also at Monitor Group. Um, and he's based in the Boston office. So very, very cool. Wonderful to have you gentlemen here. Uh, we're going to kick off. Diane has the first question, and uh, we will start from there. So welcome to Disrupt TV. Yeah, welcome, yeah. gentlemen. Yes, Thanks. It's great, great to have you with us. Uh, first, congratulations for your new book, Provoke. Uh, it's out last month. Uh, looks like it's getting fantastic reviews on Amazon. That has to be very gratifying. Uh, it looks like you put a lot of research uh, and, and, and work into the psychology behind it. And so I was wondering if you guys uh, could walk us through, uh, you know, what is our usual reaction to change and uncertainty? Uh, you know, how do humans uh, adapt to that? Uh, and how do they address it? And why is that often a problem? Sure. So why don't, why don't I jump in on this one? And, and um, as you'll find with both Steve and I, we do a pretty good job of uh, playing off each other and working off what the other one says. So I'm sure he will have some things to add. Uh, in terms of acting or reacting to uncertainty, the first thing I'd say is we actually haven't had to do it for that long in the history of business. We, we actually have not really been impacted primarily by uncertainty for, if you think back decades and decades of the, through the development of many of the most important industries in the world today, it actually hasn't been uncertainty that we've had to deal with, it's been risk. And the reason we've had to deal with risk is because we've lived in a time of linear change and with linear change comes an acknowledgement that because things don't change that fast, we can actually use data, which is by definition retrospective, to make better decisions in the future. And as we look towards the future in this somewhat linear way, um, if we use that data from the past, we can take risk out of making decisions. And that's just been that's been the history of how business has grown up. It's been the history of how we as executives within businesses have learned to, our, to do our jobs. Increasingly, we're finding, though, that linear change is not the norm. And I don't need to tell the two of you or the three of you, for that matter, that we're increasingly seeing the impact of exponential change um, in the markets that we serve, in the various different trends that impacts our context, and that brings with it a totally different reality, and that is the uncertain. And I'm sure we'll come back and talk about how you think and act differently in the, in the face of the uncertain versus the risky, but, but the good news amongst all the bad news that we have encountered through the pandemic is we as a society, as business leaders, as individuals, as human beings, as family members, now know what uncertainty feels like way more viscerally than we ever have before. And while we may not have all the tools and all the tricks to deal with it perfectly, we now certainly know what it feels like in a way that, that makes us pay attention to it more than, more than we have historically. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Steve, do you feel the same way about that as well? Well, you know, I, I, not surprisingly, Jeff and I agree on a, uh, agree on a lot of things. Um, I, I'll add to what he said about and and sort of focus on why is it a problem in our in our typical reaction um, when faced with uh, a countervailing point of view uh, on your business. It the typical reaction is to either miss it entirely or to deny that it exists and then to overanalyze it and then respond meekly to it. We see that pattern uh, happening over and over again. And I'll tell you a story, Ray. Um, the, about 12 years ago, I was sitting with a senior executive um, in the 
in, in the cable and telecom business. And we had done some research where we were looking into the behaviors of uh, their customers and potential customers. And we found a really, really tiny segment, less than 2%, that had a curious behavior. They wanted really, really good, high quality, fast internet, but they didn't want to buy all the video channels and programming that went along with it. They just wanted what they were calling in the day naked internet. And we kind of said, well, that's a really curious segment because typically, you know, when people want less than what your regular offer is now, we kind of say, we kind of look and see whether they're price sensitive or, but they weren't price sensitive. They wanted the most robust, the fastest internet, but they didn't want, uh, they didn't want all the video channels. And so this was the first sign of cord cutting behavior, right? And it was less than 2%. But the reaction of the executive when we took this data, Tim, was two, you know, 1.75%. Why would I care? Doesn't exactly. impact, it doesn't impact my business. <laughs> and so, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the response was just like tepid. And if you think about what you could have done, if you started to pull on that thread, if you were just curious about it, if you pulled on that thread, you could have said, okay, uh, how could I take advantage of this? How could it grow? How, uh, what does it mean over time? But instead, no response, studied it, curious about it. And then you look at how Netflix arose, basically harnessing that trend and, uh, and taking advantage of it. And Netflix is worth multiples of what this particular company is now worth in the marketplace. So this is, you know, this is the typical reaction and it's a problem because, you miss opportunities that are entirely disruptive to your business model. No, great point. So, and when we think about this, right, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, we we're you're provoking the future, right? I mean, what does it mean to provoke the future? How do we get there? Like what's important for you when you think about provocation, I guess, uh, as we apply that to a verb, uh, you know, what, what happens? So, well, so, so the first guess. thing is you have to you have to recognize that you're living in a world of uncertainty, and that uncertainties have a pattern. And when I say that, they they have a pattern of resolving in a way that we just we don't tend to think about. And so, the, the, as Steve and I started talking about this notion of how to provoke the future in which we have advantage, one of the core questions we had is first of all, which signals do you need to pay attention to? Do you need to pay attention to those 1.75 percent, or there's some things that 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 you don't need to pay attention to? And we can come back and talk about that. But secondly, we have to recognize when the nature of an uncertainty is changing. So the reality is that all uncertainties resolve in one way or another. Some uncertainties just kind of go away. They end up not being a reality at all. So we think back to the Y2K scare uh, that many of your listeners or watchers may remember, and that ended up being actually not something we had to worry about. And it was probably good to be prepared in some ways, but it, it was an uncertainty that resolved into nothingness. Other uncertainties, though, become something real. And when they become something real, they become a question of if they're going to happen to simply being a question of when they're going to happen. They go through something that Steve and I call a phase change from a question of if to a question of when. And so the, the, the key premise behind Provoke is that the best leaders in the world today, those that are, the, those that are able to handle exponential change and, and the increasing impact of uncertainty are those that can position themselves to see that phase change earlier than any of their competitors and then act with purpose as the uncertainty goes through the phase change. And actually, we, we you know, there's a there's a number of different aspects of the book in which we talk about how to do that, but it, it is a brand new skill for most businesses that have historically run in a linear world, taking risk out of their decisions in the way that I talked about before. 
Yeah, so that, that's very interesting. And Steve, I don't know if you want to add anything uh, to that. Um, but, um, you know, we look at uh, disruptions been with us, digital disruptions been with us arguably since as early as the 2000s. And, you know, we've heard about exponential growth and organizations are supposed to disrupt themselves. And you have this notion now of provocation. Um, and you even say that provocation is more important now, today, than ever. Why is that? Well, I, I would say just because of exponential technologies, even though some of the technologies uh, and frankly, disruption in industries has been going back, you know, think of what, think about how the car disrupted, you know, the horse and buggy. I mean, there's been disruption has been prevalent in all society for since the beginning of time, since there was, since there was commerce. What's different about now, what's different about the time that we're living in is the pace of technological change is happening so rapidly that, and those technologies are, uh, you know, because they're exponentially uh, growing, they're creating business opportunities that are either an order of magnitude better than what's happening today or an order of magnitude cheaper. And when you're talking about that degree of change and the frequency with which it's happening, if you're not looking for ways to continually delight your customer, then you're going to be disrupted by someone else. And so given that the, the speed with which that is happening, you've got to be constantly on the lookout for when things that will disrupt your business are potentially going through the phase change from if to when that Jeff described. So just think like we can think about this for example. We should have known before the pandemic that hybrid work was a matter of when it would happen, not a matter of if. It was feasible. It was desirable. Like people wanted some flexibility to have their commute time back in their day. And it was certainly viable. We could save a lot of money, uh, but we never did the test. Right. We never undertook the test of could we work you know, from home at scale until we were forced to do it. Now that we did the test, we know we can do it. So when you see something coming up, when you see something happening in the world, it's super important, even if you think it may not be relevant to run a test, because you might find like, holy moly, we you know, we now know that we can do something that we never thought we could before. And just given the number of those technologies that are existing that it's more important than ever before not to rely on my gut instinct, which says, oh, this will or won't be big, to actually run those tests and to actually test whether you can shape that future or not. You know, but you say something really interesting, right? You guys talk about the fact that you need to actually get out of this wait and see approach, not be wired, right? To just, you know, wait to see and what's going on and just take charge and do something. That's kind of the hashtag that you guys talk about. Like, wh why is that? Like, why do we wait and see? Like, wh what's the part of us that says, do we need more data? Like, are we trained that way? Like, is there something that's wired in our teaching that causes us to think this way? It, it, so the short answer is yes, that that is exactly why. And it, th that actually goes back to the, um, the core premise and some of the topics of our previous book, Detonate, um, we live in a world that has been encapsulated in playbooks that have taught us how to run our businesses, how industries react, how competitors react, how we need to think about taking risk out of the decisions because that, be, because that's just the world that we've grown up in. And all of us, as we talk about extensively in Detonate, all of us fall prey to operating by rote because of the orthodoxy around us, the conventional wisdom of the way things are and the way things have been. And the reality is, is that it, it, historically, in a, in a time of linear change, we actually haven't had to change that much. 
we haven't had to think about moving quickly and um, running the types of tests that Steve just talked about as a way to better understand the future because we've been able to rely on data and analysis as a good foresight tool as to what we should be doing. But as we talked about before, you know, we're, we're living through this shift from a world governed almost exclusively by risk to one increasingly governed by uncertainty. Risk is by definition measurable and therefore manageable. Uncertainty is not measurable. The only way you can start to add contours to uncertainty is to go do something in the market. And when I say market here, it can be an external market. It can be an internal market. If you're making a talent play, for example, go, go take some small step in the market, see what the reaction is and use that as a way to feel your way forward. It's a fundamentally different way of thinking than relying on data and analysis. Yeah, and fundamentally what we're basically saying is the the stuff from the past is just not going to be relevant in the future. And the only way you get a chance to actually figure out whether your hypothesis is right is to try it out. Um, increasingly trying to ask people what they'll do or uh, use your pattern recognition is just not as relevant when things are changing really rapidly. So you got to be, you know, constantly in that mode of trial a little bit, get a little bit of feedback and seeing and seeing what happens, as Jeff said. Yeah, so, so it's very interesting where we kind of find ourselves. Uh, and, and we're about to talk what I think is one of the most interesting ideas you guys have. Uh, and it's this, it's this you know, sense of uh, how can we spot and act on the trends that matter the most, you know, because I would argue that we might have signal fatigue, that we have so many things happening and swirling around us that we can't evaluate which ones are, are important or not. And you have this interesting framework here. Um, it kind of puts it on its head. You know, there, there's this uh, concept called strength finders that we should really kind of help people emphasize their strengths and stay away from their weaknesses. But you're really telling people to focus on those things and overcome them. Uh, and you call them fatal human flaws. Uh, and I, I like the dramatic language because I think we are kind of at a point where we have to separate the, you know, the, the wheat from the chaff. So, you know, what are those common fatal human flaws uh, and what can we do about them? Well, the, the, the fatal human flaws are not, uh, you know, things that we do because we're evil or stupid. These are just fundamentally things that um, that we all have, all four of us uh, on on this broadcast right now are subject to these, these cognitive biases. And these are just things that are programmed into our human nature that we need to be aware of because only by being aware of them can we put in place mechanisms to overcome them. So there are things that we that give us comfort as human beings, like a bias towards the status quo a bias towards information that is easily available to us. We don't naturally go and uh, try to get information that isn't in our, isn't easily within our grasp. Uh, we are naturally overconfident um, and we naturally respond more to things that give us immense joy or immense pain. So the 1.75%, for example, to harken back to our story about the executive, didn't create any pain. And so the answer was, well, it's not that big of a deal. I can I can deal with 1.75%. So these are well-known cognitive biases. And then I'll set Jeff up to the, the, the challenges when you pair those with how we tend to behave in large organizations, they create blinders. So Jeff, do you want to sh share a little bit about how we tend to behave? Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll pick up on the organizational point. So the, 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 First thing I'll say as context for what Steve just described is, as um, Diane, as, as you said, I think the reality, e even well-enlightened executives who understand exponential theory and understand that we need to be paying attention to a much, much 
wider field of vision than we have historically because of the, the nature of change um, accelerating. They are subject to all these things that Steve described. That, by the way, as as many of your listeners probably know, these are these are well described phenomena from the from the world of behavioral science. But they're they're subject to them because they're human, and we're not going to stop many people from being human anytime soon. Um, and so the question is, how can we actually work together as humans to do something about it together? And so the the, the issue, the compounding issue of the fatal individual human flaws. Um, is that when you get a bunch of those individuals, a bunch of those human beings together into organizations, that's when things get really weird. Okay, so if you if you imagine the impact of some of those individual biases, the availability bias, the status quo bias, the affect heuristic bias, where the, the last emotional one that Steve talked about, you get all of those interacting together and we start to see organizational behaviors that in the moment feel totally natural, but actually don't help us see that full range of, of possibility in the future. So for example, we have a tendency within organizations to be over polite. And we're over polite because we don't want to be embarrassed ourselves. We don't want to embarrass others because those biases are so deeply held that if you challenge those biases, it actually it, it actually feels painful and you cause others pain. So we try to be polite and we try to we try to avoid conflict. We take it offline. <laughs> yes, thank you, Steve. I didn't know exactly what you were doing there, but yes, let's take it offline. You know, let, let I'll grab you in the hallway afterwards and we'll talk about it. Let's not let's not address it right now. And of course, it, of course, Ray, I couldn't hear what you were saying, but go for it. I thought we were East Coasters and we just go direct. I mean, just tell yeah, it like well, it is. No, Don't even be East, passive even aggressive East, Californians. Come on. Even those of us in the Northeast um, have a tendency to be over polite sometimes. And as Steve said, right, you take it offline. There's not enough time to actually think anymore because we're taking so many things offline and jabbing our days full. So this yep, whole yep. system of, of issues work together to, to create uh, something that Steve and I refer to in the book as the structural dismantling of curiosity of organizations. We've stopped being curious, even in the face of all the data that we have to be more curious. And there's some very simple antidotes to that. There's some simple ways to remove those blinders. But um, let me let me pause in my rant right now to to see if you have other questions or responses to that. I don't know, Diane. What do you have? I, I'm I'm just like it's. I'm just, we're fighting human nature here. This is tough. So. It's, uh... Well, I find it, the setting matters a lot too. People are much more willing to be candid, let's say, uh, in social media, where they feel like there's no repercussions, and it's inter it's very interesting. So we have to put people in an environment which they're 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 willing they're able to succeed. And and I I'd be curious to know if, if that's one of the ways you come overcome fatal human flaws is put them people in conditions where they yeah won't experience those flaws. Yeah, and in, in fact, Diane, you have to we have to increasingly design an environment that's more likely to create the preconditions for the kind of thinking, the kind of thoughtfulness uh, that will come with provoking the future. And one of the things, one of the preconditions we're increasingly seeing that is important to uh, an organization removing some of those blinders that Jeff talked about is promoting both diversity and inclusion in your organization. And I say both of them, and I'm not skipping equity, but I, I actually want to talk about both diversity and inclusion specifically. So why diversity? So diversity because what we're going for on teams to solve the complex and new problems of today is cognitive diversity. It's been mathematically shown um, in academic studies that we get better uh, we get we get better solutions to those complex and new problems by using cognitively diverse teams. Why? Because 
you approach problems from different ways. You'll see more of the contours of the of the problem. And as a result, you'll select and process in different ways and come up with a better answer. Put simply, as Scott Page likes to say, if you want to get a better economic forecast, you're better to add a theater major to your team than the sixth economist. Now, where does cognitive diversity come from? Cognitive diversity comes from real world diversity because the way we're raised, uh, our experiences, our backgrounds um, are learned uh, through our environment. And those are different based on our real world diversity. So you put diverse teams together, but importantly, you've got to have each of those members of the team feel like their voice is heard. And that's where inclusion comes in. So it's not enough just to create diversity. Um, and by the way, we have to stop putting single people, either women or people of color on a team as the only people that are that are there from that <laughs> from that particular thing, because then you're making them feel like they're representing their entire that entire yeah. diversity group. And so it's the least inclusive thing that you can that you can do. So we've got to create an environment where people feel like they can bring their authentic selves, because when you do that, then you start to get lots of new and interesting data and experiences that you didn't have before. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things we noticed is that you, know, you have these situations where um, there's also diversity of thought, right? And it's not just diversity based on, you know, physical appearances. It's bringing, you know, if you have scientists, engineering, technologists, um, you know, folks, math folks in place, you want to bring ethnographers, design folks. Uh, you also want to bring in folks that are sociologists that, that look at things different to get the right brain, left brain kind of convergence as well uh, as you work towards those digital artisans. And so we're also seeing diversity actually emerge in different ways. Um, age as well, right? Uh, having the, the mentorship based on age or experiences, uh, those are other things that we're seeing pop up as well. So it's, it's been very interesting along those lines. And when you write about that and provoke really about helping it to increase decision-making, um, a lot of times it's also about thinking about what, what those common values are um, and, and really getting to some shared values within organizations as well as an embracement of uh, what those diverse views are. How do you see that? Like when you're in practice, right? I mean, there's a lot of these DEI initiatives that are going on, but there's also a lot of baseline that's off um, where people are trying to get to some common ground. And so right now we're seeing a lot of, I mean, the real world on the ground is a lot of work trying to get the common ground, um, common understanding and trust as these DNI issues are being rolled out. Uh, and it's also hindering the ability to actually move very quickly in some organizations. So we've seen some companies actually say, hey, look, right, for innovation, creativity, brainstorming, we definitely are going to use this, you know, for um, execution and operations, like we're not going to budge, like we're just getting people that follow a certain rigid path and just going. Um, how do you rectify those two things inside organizations as people operationalize diversity? So I, th that is a wide ranging and multifaceted question. I'm giving you lots of room I'm, here. I'm going I'm to pick a part of it and try to answer it. Um, and I, I've got a couple related thoughts to that. So the first thing I'd say is what Steve just described through the introduction of diversity is by definition, the introduction of cognitive diversity and what you're doing when you, when you effectively enable cognitive diversity is you're introducing positive tension into the system. Okay. So I, one of us, um, I think it was me, it may have been Steve, we kind of share a brain these days, but one of us said earlier, um, we're not going to stop being human. We actually can't stop ourselves from being subject to the human biases that we know are real in, in all human beings. And so one of the most effective ways of creating that positive tension or, or the, the creative tension is to have different backgrounds and different biases represented at the same table. When that happens, you get to good outcomes, but 
not if it's all conflict, not if it's all tension and the tension that you've created actually ends up being negative instead of positive. And that's why some of these other mechanisms of creating shared values and, and common belief systems in some point of intersect are um, are really important. So um, that that's one, that, that's one thought on, on the question you asked. The second is you described two different models that, as I heard you describe it, essentially allow you to strike a balance. And while I think it can be taken too far, and I'm not sure I would I would say that you only want diversity when you've got innovation and you don't want diversity when you're executing on the here and now. The reality is what you described. I'm being extreme intentionally to make a point, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, it's, but, it's, but it's an important point, and, and it's actually one that I think Steve and I are, are sometimes mis mistaken to be or, or mistakenly believed to be taken as saying, you've got to blow up everything. You've got to do everything differently. You've got to change the entire way you operate. And that, that's not actually the case. You need to continue to run your core business under today's rule books, under today's orthodoxy, so that you can actually shed or, or yield profit and cash to fund what comes next. And you have to increasingly deal with the uncertain and step towards more innovative business models. It's entirely plausible to me that you need less flexibility and you probably need a little bit less cognitive diversity if what you're kind of trying to do is execute for efficiency. But I would never encourage um, any part of the organization, no matter what side of the balance you're falling on there, to think that diversity isn't important for what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, no, that, make, that makes total sense. And and so, so gentlemen, you know, you made a case for how change is more frequent, more common. We have to operationalize for it uh, at every level. Um, and, we, and we do see this. And I actually hear from change agents all the time. They're trying to make a difference in their organization. They're, they're trying to disrupt or they're just trying to improve or they're trying to drive real transformation saying, hey, we got to move into the future. And so using this framework that you have and, 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 and you know, uh, overcoming your fatal human flaws, uh, you know, the thing I hear the most often is, is I, I buy into all of these things that you're saying, but I can't get my boss to do this. I even hear this very from very senior executives say, I can't get our CEO to understand these new things. Uh, what makes, in your mind, a successful pro a provocateur uh, using your frameworks and your concepts? Yeah, I, I, so I think we we got this question a lot, Diane, on, on when we wrote detonate too. like how do you how do you blow up stuff uh from the middle of the organization it dangerous yeah and and i would so i think jeff and i have increasingly come to the point of view that it's 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 really hard to do this without senior executive support i think i, I think to some extent we've got to rely on our leaders to embrace this because they've got to give folks in the organization the top cover to be provocative. I did. I, interestingly, I did have someone on my own team today send me a note and saying, hey, I'm new to the team. How do I be a provocateur? And my advice to that and my advice to that person is the, the first thing you probably need to do is to do a really good job at what you're asked to earn the right, earn the right to try to do things differently. So to, to some extent, if, if what you do is you come in and you say everything you're doing is wrong, you're going to create just like the cognitive biases are going to come out. It's like, what do you know? And 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 I think that's going to be the natural reaction. So you got to remember, you're trying to change human behavior. So I I I love the idea of provocateuring uh, provoca uh, by nudging, right? It doesn't necessarily provocateuring doesn't have to be, um, yes. you know, slapping you in the face. It could be asking a subtle question. You know what what you know uh, what we like to do in the strategy business is try to get our clients to 
really think about what they what they need to be doing differently, not coming to them with the answer, but increasingly coming to them with a question that gets them thinking. It's almost like inception, right? Where you what you want to do is plant yeah. a seed in someone else's brain so that it's their idea that they increasingly come to the the mindset that they need to change. And I think if if the the more you go and you just tell someone that they're stupid, look how that's working in our politics today. Right. That's exactly what everybody on each side of the aisle is trying to do is saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And then we just don't hear it. So instead, listen, ask really subtle and insightful questions, get them thinking, and then you'll have a much more receptive uh, way to provoke. You know, I really want to get to your point on the three provocateurs you guys actually looked at. And I thought that was pretty interesting. I think it was Deborah, Valerie, and Ryan, I believe. Um, and you can I talk a little bit about why they were provocateurs, what made them that way, how they did it in a way that was, um, you know, that, that nudged but done create resentment, right? I think that's what you've been talking about. And it's a, it's a special skill. It's not something everybody has. So let's start there. Yeah. Well, so I'll pick up on one of them and then maybe, Steve, we just do a little bit of back and forth. But the first one that appears in the book is um, the story of a woman by the name of Debbie Beal. Uh, as some of your listeners may know, Debbie, 31, 32 years ago, I think at this point, founded a, a group called the Posse Foundation. And the Posse Foundation um, has a has had very powerful impact based on a very simple premise. And the simple premise um, actually relates back to the name of the organization itself. It comes from a quote that um, a, a very highly capable um, uh, black student made to Debbie when he had gone off to college and he came back from college having dropped out. And he said, you know what? I never would have dropped out if I had my posse with me. And the insight that, that, that Debbie had there, and this, this, by the way, is one of, the, one of the keys to being an effective provocateur is having clarity of insight about, about one thing you can really hang your belief in the future on. The, the insight that Debbie had is, geez, what would happen if we sent highly capable leaders who otherwise wouldn't have opportunities to attend some of the highest or most prestigious universities in the world? What if we sent them together in groups of 10 as a posse so that there's a self-reinforcing system to help them get through school and, and persist and graduate and, and, um, and be more effective uh, leaders in the future, which is exactly what the Posse Foundation has done. They've now sent over 10,000 students, um, high, high leadership potential students, to some of the some of the world, some of the U.S.'s top universities, and uh, essentially enabled 1.5 billion dollars in in scholarship funding for these students. And and as such, they've been able to shift their aspirations. Now, as Debbie would say, her what they're trying to do is change the face of leadership in America, which is a noble goal. And it all came from that original insight about the that that allowed Posse to create the, the system that they did. What, if you look, though, carefully at, at Debbie's story and at the points along the road um, that, that she faced various different obstacles, what she was doing in every single one of those is dodging and weaving and pulling in the right people from her ecosystem to help her over, overcome those small hurdles along the way. And what I would say has made Debbie a master provocateur over time is not necessarily just force of presence, although Steve and I have learned over several dinners with Debbie that she can be a forceful presence for sure, but actually her ability to impact humans and to get them to align behind her to help her achieve her vision. And I'd say that's probably common amongst many of the uh, of the provocateurs that we talked about in the book. Yeah. And and the other one that I'd, I, I'll, I'll share a bit about the other two. Um, so Valerie Rainford, 
uh, is a provocateur. And, and really, we profile her for two reasons in the book. She was incredibly successful at driving the advancement of black talent at J.P. Morgan Chase under uh, the sponsorship of Jamie Dimon. And what she discovered there was the real key to unlocking um, the promotion of uh, a particular segment of diverse talent in an organization was sharing in a very stark and disaggregated way the data. So she would bring binders and binders of data to Jamie and the executive teams to show how at every at, at different levels in the organization, they were consistently under uh, sort of uh, underperforming relative to their potential and under Valerie's leadership over, uh, you know, the, the last several years uh, before she left J.P. Morgan. I'll talk about that in a second. Um They've made considerable strides in the number of uh, black people in uh, both senior and uh, up and coming next gen type roles within uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. And it she discovered the formula at, at J.P. Morgan. And then what she had the foresight to do was say there are going to be other uh, CEOs, most of them white men who need a wayfinder for how to navigate the world of promoting uh, the advancement of diverse talent. And this was well before uh, the murder of George Floyd and the factors that sort of created a much more uh, woke set of senior executives looking for this. She said, this is going to be something that is uh, demanded. I can see this is not going to be a matter of when it's going to be, sorry, a matter of if it's going to be a matter of when. And she left a very comfortable uh, gig at, at J.P. Morgan Chase to found uh, Ellery Talent Strategies, named after her hometown. Yeah. And uh, she's uh, created a truly remarkable business in doing so. And then the, the other person we profile is a fellow named Brian Gravel, who is the uh, brainchild behind the Atlanta uh, Beltline, a wonderful uh, urban revival uh, project. It's one of the largest urban projects in the United States, and maybe the largest if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. And the thing that we love about Ryan's story was the power of observation. Like just a simple, like Ryan is a provocateur because he noticed how people behave. And so he was, there's a story he told us that he went to live in Paris and he loved just watching people sitting at a cafe. They all looked super happy walking by. And then he went back to Atlanta and he was sitting in his car and he was super depressed that he couldn't see anybody. He couldn't interact with other people. He couldn't look people in the, in the eye. And he believed that to promote real um, uh, happiness, amongst a diverse set of people, you have to be able to interact with them. And so he he used the world of design and um, urban planning to promote a way for people to interact in a way that they just didn't before in a very um, concrete jungle like Atlanta. And so the Beltline has been a, a way, and it's not been without its fits and starts over the, the period of time that you know, Ryan's been involved. To your, to your point, it's, uh, it's a, an example of creating an environment that will naturally overcome you know, yes. people's human flaws. And so uh, we are just about out of time. Uh, it's been, I can't believe how it's flown by. Uh, just wanted, if you could just very briefly weigh in 
Um, you know, given all this, that you know, bringing your best data, overcoming your cognitive biases, creating the environment where you're successful, what's the most important thing that we can all do tomorrow to start becoming better provocateurs? Stop trying to predict the future. <laughs> Darn, that goes my job. There's a, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a foundation. I mean, we actually didn't even talk about the central model to all of provoked, but we talk about the five actions that provocateurs typically deploy as you go through that phase change of if to when. And the most important foundational capability is to have the humility to look forward into the future and say, we just don't know how it's going to turn out. And therefore, we're going to plan against multiple plausible versions of the future. Steve, what would you add to that? So, just I would say, be curious and always run the test. So, I think the best way to get over your own cognitive bias for believing that you're right is to actually go and run a test. Whenever someone says, "I believe this to be the case," it says, "Well, let's test that. How could we test it?" That's a great question to ask in any organization. Put the scientific method to work. We're going to be provocateurs out there. We're here with Stephen Goldbach, CSO, the Chief Strategy Officer of Deloitte, and Jeff Tuff, Senior Leader of Innovation Practice at Deloitte. You can follow him on Twitter at Stephen underscore Goldbach and at Jeff Tuff, T-U-F-F, and get their book, Provoke, um, where books are sold. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Happy Friday, and thanks for being here on Disrupt TV. Thanks for having us. Thanks. thanks well done. Provocative as well, as we could imagine. Um, oh, yeah, definitely uh, some good thoughts here. But speaking of provocation, we uh, we have a we have another guest. Yeah, Here we, we have go. John Reed. Should we go read through his bio? Or we just skip it. Now we know who John Reed is. <laughs> no, John. John, we are so excited to have you here. John, as everyone knows, is the uh, co-founder and uh, man in charge of Diginomica, um, and of course, um, an all-around stand-up guy, um, someone that's actually been following the enterprise software industry for a while. He's definitely not someone that is not. He's definitely not someone that just follows the rules. He's a provocateur himself. Uh, but more importantly, we're happy to have you here today, and we're going to talk about what this mantling customer success i mean what else are we gonna be talking about here and then what what's hot so but welcome thanks guys i really enjoyed that last segment especially the end about stop trying to predict the future i uh just got my first two predictions posts from pr agencies yesterday <laughs> and so i just said to them shouldn't we just take a year off from this considering the last two years of predictions were utterly terrible uh you know like shouldn't we just take a breather but anyhow the beat goes on, <laughs> but it's nice to find myself amongst the digital giants once again. Ray, that's a book plug. What do you think? I'll take it, man. <laughs> no, uh, not bad. So yeah, um, I'm I'm looking forward to CCE next week and uh, moderating moderating a fun panel on Monday uh, on yeah, Tuesday. Actually, forward to having you. Yeah, that's gonna be great. Great. So yeah, awesome. and I've got something special for you today. So. Whatever you want to do, guys. Right. I've, I've got some cool stuff for you, though. And, and I think you're going to want to have some input on it also. So, Yeah, let's roll. Let's see what you got for us. Um, very, very excited. So, I mean. Okay, cool. All right. Well, um, so anyhow, this is a concept under development that I am debuting on Disrupt TV. Wow. And the two of you uh, enterprise wiseacres, I think, can really help me out on this one. Um, so we're going to start here. Guys, did you know that every vendor has a robust customer success program now and that every customer is successful? I bet you didn't know that. Well, I, no. they certainly invest a lot in customer success. Uh, uh, why is that, John? <laughs> well, in, in some ways, it's a good thing, right? Um, because customer success is a reflection uh, of what I used to call, it's sort of a discrediting of the era uh, I used to call handshakes and smiles, where you give everyone high fives that go live and kind of march on to the next project. 
And that's how the enterprise software industry ran for a long time, long time, right, guys? Just admit it. That's how it worked. I think you called uh, that word uh, grin something, but I don't remember what that was. It's a PG audience here. so. <laughs> no, I, I thought customer success was a way for you to support your, your customers and give away free services uh, without you know losing your tech multiple. Isn't that, that, isn't that the actual reason? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's actually a pretty good riff, Diane. That's not bad at all. Um, and, and look, I mean, I, I want to be a little careful here because because I've been struggling with this before the show because I don't want to say that customer success isn't an important thing to talk about. No, um, but, but the problem, here's, here's the problem though. When everyone has a so-called success, successful customer success program, um, then it becomes very, very difficult for buyers to understand exactly what a vendor truly has to offer. I think by the end of this segment, we're going to have a lot more clarity. And, uh, you know, everyone has one, but how, how can buyers kind of make make their way amidst all the overconfident noise. And frankly, guys, I'm fed up and I'm going to do something about it. So I've got a six okay. point, I've got a six point countdown for you today. And the theme of it is stop Drum bragging. Roll. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the theme of this is stop bragging about your customer success, success program until you can address the following points. And I want to just give a, a quick context here. I was calling this the Pandora's box effect, but now I have a better one, mm. better name for it. It's the buzzword boomerang effect. Be careful the buzzwords you flog because they will come back to haunt you. And customer success is a buzzword that has a very strong boomerang effect. Mm -hmm. uh, as an example, from a previous show, Disrupt TV, I debuted another concept called Legacy SaaS. Like yep. And I put the SaaS industry heavyweights on the spot. And the, the central message is your work isn't done. So SaaS opened a Pandora's box on the true implications of cloud business for customers. So the, the Pandora's box for that included things like, where's your consumption-based pricing model? Why are your contracts and licensing models still a headache and a pain in the butt? Why does your tech support still suck? That's not a class cloud business you're running. That's a legacy SaaS business. So it's the kind of thing where you have to be careful. So the buzzword boomerang effect applies here. Uh, you roll out something innovative and sexy like like customer success, but the logical evolution of the model re requires you to transform internally far beyond what you could have expected when you created the buzzword. Are you with me so far? I am, but it sounds like what you're telling me is that SaaS companies basically exist because they didn't build their complete software. It was half delivered and they started charging for it. And now they got to figure out what the heck to do with it. Is that what you're trying to tell me? <laughs> well, I think hand in hand also goes with the fact that- Or is that constant through, innovation? <laughs> Sorry. In order for them to justify the, the monthly fees, because I've had many CIOs tell me that SaaS feels like buying the, the whole thing every year. And so the customer yep. success was, was created so that, that, that we wouldn't get to customer abandonment, which is, you know, we're only actually using 10% of the licenses that we the seats we're paying for. That, that's what we actually want. And they go, no, no, we'll make you much more successful and show you all the places in the business that, where you could use this product, right? So that, you know, that's that's kind of what it, it's. Wait, but yes. there's SaaS vaporware. Is that what we're talking about here? Wait, wait, <laughs> wait, wait, we have like SaaS vaporware and SaaS shelfware. Wait, how does that even happen? Well, the good news is some of the metrics that have been developed do combat some of that, right? So we've all heard of things that. They were, they were really developed in the SaaS industry, but they can apply to other contexts. Things like customer lifetime value, churn rate, annual retention rate. Some of these get pretty wonky. At, at the core of it is really user adoption and satisfaction and the notion of that I value value this, this vendor as a partner. I want to do business. And some of these metrics have gotten pretty granular, so I do want to give vendors credit for that. Um, but um, 
the, what we're what we're doing so far is is simply not enough. And so the countdown here is basically don't brag to me about your customer success program until you have all the things on this list. And it's a degree of difficulty scale for the countdown. So, and um, I'm also going to ask you guys when I get done if I miss some important ones. So, so as as I'm doing this, like like take a few notes, and I would recommend the audience do the same, and feel free to pop something into one of the uh, chats as well. So let's start with number six, and kind of, and I think you'll get the idea once we go forward. So number, number six. six is your supposedly great NPS score is not enough. Higher, higher NPS. All right. You're supposedly great MPS score. That's that's not going to do it. And now why is that? Well, because the MPS score is a lagging indicator. So stop talking about it. It's too static. It's too late. By the time you get that MPS score, it's too late to intervene on a troubled project. Instead, show me your real-time customer health intervention model. Show me how you flag troubled projects for early support. Advice, interventions. Yeah, maybe AI can help with that. I'm willing to talk about that. <laughs> uh, don't talk to me about value engineering. Talk to me about things like real-time value assessment. Oh, and by the way, uh, can your customers see their own health score in a real-time dashboard? I don't think so. So think in so. other words, you have work to do. Um, so anyway, that's that's number six. Does, does that kind of make sense, guys? It does. Yeah. surprisingly far down, so I can't wait to see the other ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and one of the reasons I, 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 I put this like not so hard is I think vendors have made some progress on this by things like yeah, monitoring they're, adoption they're, and provisioning rates. Not, but not most of them yet, not the average. Yeah, one. exactly. And, and certainly most of them have not exposed this to their customers, which is the key, right? The customers should be able to see these metrics for themselves. Uh, number five. Where is your embedded benchmarking by industry and job role? Where is oh, it? Look at that. Can users easily see how they perform against their peers? I've never Where understood why they haven't done this. They have the data. They don't use it. Yeah. Dion, you're, you're taking my punchline, man. That shows you're on your game. Why can't customers see where they lag in real time? I've seen one software vendor that, that has made real strides on this. Uh, they happen to be a Diginomica partner, so I don't want to get into too much vendor right. naming just because like, I don't want this to feel like an advertisement for our partners. That's not why I'm doing this segment. Um, but by the way, as you pointed out, that's the real promise of, of, of SAS is aggregating data, not just for your benefit, for your customers. And one thing I do want to point out here is I have had a couple of vendors protest this issue and say, oh, well, there's data privacy issues involved in here. Well, that's a that's terrible, yep. Yep. That's a terrible excuse for 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 lagging on this issue. It's terrible data privacy. And I would say that's a terrible complaint. You, all that can be easily anonymized. It's not a problem. Preach, brother. Preach. You absolutely have it down there. Absolutely. That that's not a sufficient excuse. Yeah. And uh, so now you can see right why why bragging about customer success has a boomerang effect because now you're getting questions like this and how many vendors have actually successfully embedded this into their project so that you can quickly take actions when you see you're lagging behind your industry peers. I don't think very many. Time to get to work. All Time right. To get to work. So let's let's get tougher. Okay. Where is your customer bill of rights? Oh. Where is it? I like that one. I like that where one. Where is it? Okay. And and, and I, I hear the resistance from the audience on this one. It's a cor this is a corny concept and it's a marketing exercise. No, okay. I wrote a SaaS bill of rights. I'm completely in on it. Yep. So there you I go. Too, yeah, exactly. And the uh, it's isn't it in the terms and conditions though? Isn't it in the contract? 
it is, but it's different to make it transparent and public and put it on your website. Yeah, and, right. and, and now some vendors have done this and, and I don't know all of them that have, um, the first one that really called my attention to it was Acumatica and, uh, and then Infor followed suit and there could be others. Um, these two are Digonomica partners, but I did feel I needed to name these because I want to provide a couple of examples because some of these things can be fairly specific. And let me read a few from Acumatica so you get a sense of how, how accountability can come from these. Consumption-based licensing that does not inhibit business growth. That's one of theirs. Uh, sustainable pricing with annual increases of no more than 3%. So, okay, there, there may be increases, but they've committed publicly to how what those price raises might be. Ownership of and access to your data anytime. Um, this, this, this prohibits certain kinds of licensing models based on data that a vendor can dream up, which we see all the time. So you can see how a list like that, if you construct it properly, and there's probably a lot of other good ones that could go on a list like that, it does hold you accountable, right? And, and yet most vendors, if you go on their websites, do not have anything like this. Yeah, maybe they have it on page 12 of their contract, like Deanne said, or page 122, but well, and that was really, I, I meant that in jest. I mean, the, the, the real challenge is, uh, you know, IT is having to become you know, the, uh, a, a staff of lawyers and contract managers who can actually get in there and state that. And, and why customers aren't banding together and really insisting on that. This happened in the standards war in the 90s. I was there. Customers finally have, were fed up and said, no more. We're not buying this stuff until you meet this, you know, meet these standards that, uh, you know, or at least uh, uh, adhere to standards that we agree to. And that changed everything. And we need to do that for SAS. And, and I hope that's this is your oh. point here. All right, guys. Uh, Ray, anything to add to that? No, I, I completely agree. I mean, this, this is okay. one of those things where, I mean, every vendor probably should be thinking about this and they've all punted most of them punted so yep well if you want to excel in customer success here is your opportunity because when others punt you run for a score how's that um so <laughs> so okay now now these these next ones get harder so so the degree of difficulty is is going to climb here so and actually i kind of reversed the order of four and three to reflect that so this this was originally four but this is actually three now and number three is um let me uh have your partners embraced your KPIs or are you working at cross purposes? When I talk with major vendors about that, I ask them, how can you talk about customer success when your SI partners have different metrics and KPIs than you do? Where's the accountability here? When all stakeholders on a project haven't agreed to the same KPI targets, how can you talk about that when you're working at cross purposes? This is actually a real landmine because customers sign mostly different contracts with their services partners and their software vendors. Not all the time. Sometimes there's overlap, but often there's more than one or two. Sometimes there's even three contracts involved. So, okay, how do we agree on collective KPI measurements to see that we are indeed heading on in that right direction? So, in other words, we want to have these regular health checks to make sure we're on track, but do we all agree upon what those health checks are going to look like? Look, this is not an easy thing to solve. I'm not going to sit here and say we can get off the show and by next Monday we have this. Like, I, I totally understand how difficult this well, is and that it's a work the, in progress. The problem is, is that the fundamental business models are at odds. So an SI or uh, a consulting partner who's implementing will, will not want to use a time to value KPI. So what's the time to value? Because they want that project to run for nine months to a year. Whereas the vendor wants that thing rolled out right away so they can start getting revenue, right? So they're, they're, they're at, as you said, fundamental odds. Well, thank you for pointing that out because one of my big contentions about this industry is that the the disruption in software 
the services disruption is not kept up, but it's going to have to. And eventually that light is going to get shined on the services industry. So to your point around the cross purposes, if services industry and SI partners don't change around these models, they're going to yeah. have that change forced upon them. So they maybe they want to get ahead of the game instead of being instead of dragging it from behind. Ray, you have a comment, I'm sure. But there are two points, right? I mean, one is the fact that if you're an SI and you're not at delivering value and you're not a value-added partner at this point, you're going to get eliminated. Everything's going direct to consumer. So that alignment is important. Um, and, and even if there isn't alignment, if they're not solving a need that the other company doesn't see as alignment, you'll also be taken out, right? So those are the two factors we definitely will see in that market. No doubt about it. All right, let's keep going. I got two more. Two more. Uh, number two yep. with John. Yeah, this is number two. And the, these are really like degrees of difficulty is how I arrange this, um, in, in my opinion. Um, number two. All right. Let's where is deep. your, this is hard to read. Where is your benefits maturity model? A while back, I challenged enterprise software vendors, provide me with your post go live maturity model. And most of this is basically a bias that I have. We talked about cognitive biases earlier. Uh, I believe that most of the advanced benefits of SaaS software are not only not achieved to go live, but they require a concerted, diligent, ongoing effort on the part of both the customers, vendors, and partners to achieve those things. I believe it's an act of will. I don't think it happens just auto-magically <laughs> to use one of the classic buzzword bingo phrases. Words. Yep. Oh, indeed. Now, now look, I, I, you guys talked about Y2K earlier, and I think this is interesting because I've come to see remote work spurring software purchases as a type of a Y2K phenomenon. Now, the difference, obviously, is that remote work was real, whereas Y2K turned out to be not like a lot of fuss about nothing. But um, cloud software growth was spurred by this model because we had to have that remote work uh, in place in order to kind of continue productivity, keep the lights on, all that stuff. And yeah, the software is easier to use. But my question would be, are you really set up to compete in the so-called vaccine economy where you have this roller coaster of demand supply chain volatility. And according to Ray's book, you have potential digital giants coming to eat you up and eat up your industry. Are you built for that? Um, and I, I think these advanced benefits of cloud software can help you with that, but they don't come out of the box. And so where are the maturity models? I've had one vendor give me theirs that I was able to publish publicly. I don't see a lot of this publicly otherwise advanced benefit to do that right i mean yep. make them understand where they where customers will be when they start and where they could go afterwards and where they're going to get the value from and all of that totally and and we can make a long list of what some of these so-called advanced benefits are but they include things like figuring out how to act on real-time data to create new business models ray this is one you could probably riff on for the rest of the show labor reallocation into higher impact tasks uh, allowing business users to literally auto automate their own workflows without any adult supervision whatsoever. <laughs> Tangible ROI, not just TCO and operational efficiency, which are the usual metrics that, that vendors yeah. roll out. Yeah. Um, all that stuff is classified under advanced benefits. Time to start publishing the models around it. So that leaves us with one more. We're almost out of time, so I guess I should just roll right into it. Number Shall one. I? Number one. Ready for this one? I hope everyone's sitting down. All right. Where is your licensing consumption and auditing risk dashboard? And do your customers see it in real time? Nothing chills so-called customer success like an audit or some kind of data toll tax. And I, I was talking to a vendor about this this week, one that historically does tend to audit their customers. Vendors and would never I, do that. What do you mean? This is sad. And I, 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 said, I said to the vendor, and they agreed, 
but they don't have this yet. I said, with today's tools and data, a licensing audit should never be a surprise. Never. Customers should be able to see their licensing and consumption levels at a glance, make adjustments without convoluted reconfiguring of those licenses, and they should be able to see when they're heading into some type of uncharted territory, perhaps with a new third-party um, you know, app or dashboard that they're using. They should see where they're heading into risk they need to talk to a vendor about. That should all be provided to them. Vendors have all this data. Why isn't it being exposed? Why is it being monitored? Why are customers, if, if you're going to audit some customers, then, then sorry, but your customer success program is going to have some problems because try calling up uh, a customer a week after you put them through an audit and talk with them about upselling and land and expand, they're going to expand you right out the exit to your. Well, and, and John, you know, um, just as well as I do, there are some vendors who make it very easy to over license a product and then they, then they want to reel it in and start monetizing it. And that's, and that's all part of the plan, but I agree. It's, it, it, it's diametrically opposed to what we're trying to do with customer success. Yeah. And there you have it, folks. That and, and do you have any additions? I mean, I, I as I was listening to the conversation, I was thinking you could probably have something around diversity scorecard. You could probably have something around security. So this list could go on. But I, did I miss anything that, that's on your minds, guys? Yeah, I mean, I, the only thing I would add to it is really it, it's not about MPS. It's it's really about the feedback of customers and how well they're actually put back into the roadmap, right? And and the ability to actually take customer feedback, put it into products, and and what that speed and time to innovation is. That'd be the big one, and that would be tied back to customer success, right? And customer customer inspired innovations into the roadmap. Maybe that's maybe that's the category. Totally. I had a vendor tell me this week real quick. Um, they said they said 60% of our most recent like release was was from customer feedback. So they were able to and, and that's stuff you can you can really chart now. Yeah, and, yeah. and I would just add with multi-cloud, I think there's gonna be uh, it, it's important and it's vital that SaaS vendors allow customers, just like the, the cloud vendors are to run that cloud wherever they want to run it. It's on a, on a commercial cloud and a hybrid uh, uh, cloud data center, wherever that's, that has to be a, a SaaS right at some point soon, or we're just not going to, it's all going to get unmanageable. Data gravity is going to become a huge problem. Absolutely. That's a great point. Well, Hey, John, this is awesome. We got a list. Sounds like you got a blog post ready to go really about <laughs> demantling customer yeah. success management. And so this is a uh, awesome. We're here with John Reed, uh, the one and only co-founder and Diginomica at Diginomica. More importantly, he's going to be at CCE monitoring a very interesting panel on brain machine interfaces. Check it out. We will secretly broadcast the live stream for this event. So look for it cool. um, at CCE. So see you next week, man. Thanks for being here. See on you the guys. Show. Thanks, John. Later. Catch it. All right, God, Diane, it's gone by really fast. We're out in an hour. We're like hours away from CCE. What are your thoughts? What do you think about the show so far and uh, some of your summary? Well, I, well, I can't wait. Uh, we're, you know, we're, uh, on uh, Tuesday morning, we're going to have our uh, induction ceremony for the next round of the BT-150. Uh, I think that brings us up to almost 750 folks we brought in. Uh, and we have a very special announcement of the BT-150 Hall of Fame, our first ever. Oh. Wow, it's going to be officially announced, uh, and someone will be there in person, uh, uh, and so we'll uh, yeah we'll announce that. Uh, you know, I worked I worked on that one, and very exciting list of names. I cannot wait to to reveal. Uh, and yeah, we've got some fantastic panels. We've got great views. I want to bring my drone and fly it around the outside and and post it on Twitter. And so, uh, if you follow the CCE twenty twenty one hashtag, you can uh, you know participate and have a lot of the fun with us. 
yeah, we're really looking forward to having everyone there. And guess what? You know, there is no show next week. It's uh, next show is November 5th because we got Constellation Connected Enterprise. Uh, but episode 256, you have David Hassel, the CEO and co-founder of 15.5. And of course, Alec Ross, the author of The Raging 2020s and Distinguished Visiting Professor. So we'll have those two individuals and a surprise third guest that will be joining us on November 5th. So stay tuned for that show. Thanks, everybody, for being here. It's Friday. It's Disrupt TV, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, uh, most Fridays. And more importantly, thanks to our awesome co-host, guest host today, Diane Hinchcliffe. And, of course, we'll see you all at Constellation Connected Enterprise. Take care. Happy Friday. Take care, everybody.